welcome to Pastor John as he slides the pulpit out. I'll tell you, we make them work for it, right? Little, little did we, you all know that Benjamin Moonlights is our PR guy. So I appreciate you, all, appreciate you all making me feel better about myself this morning. Well, good morning. We are going to be this morning in the book of Haggai. Yes, that is a book of the Bible. I'm guessing that you probably haven't spent a whole lot of time in Haggai in your personal devotions. It's okay. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers would be happy to give one to you. If you get one of our hardback blue ones, Haggai is on page 669. If you don't have one of our hardback Bibles, don't turn to page 669. That's not where it is. You have a table of contents in your Bible that you can use. There's no shame at looking at the table of contents. It's a short little book. It probably doesn't take up more than about a page or two in your, in your Bible. And you might ask, why are we going to talk about the book of Haggai? Well, a couple of reasons. One, here at, at Riverstone, we believe that all Scripture is inspired by God, is authoritative, and is profitable, which means that we should devote ourselves to studying all of it, even the parts that we don't understand or don't uh, frequent in our Bible reading plans. But the second reason is because there's, there's some similarities. Now, this might be a bit of a stretch, right? So tomorrow's New Year's Eve. New Year's is a time when we often uh, look back, we reflect on what's happened in the, in the past year, we look forward to what's maybe going to happen or what we'd like to see happen in the coming year. And we, we resolve to make changes to our life, right? We make these resolutions, all the resolutions that you make on New Year's Day and then you break two weeks later because you're like, I don't know why I ever thought I could go to the gym seven days a week. That was ridiculous. But you bought the $400 shoes because you were totally going to do it. No. We make these resolutions because we look back at what we've been doing and we look forward to what we should be doing or we think we want to have be different and we... We say we want to make things different. Well, there's something similar going on in the book of Haggai. Haggai also occurs at this significant time of transition and reflection in the life of the people of Israel. Uh, they, they had been exiled from the land of Israel for 70 years because of their disobedience to God, and that was God's judgment on them, and they were taken to exile in Babylon, and then they... The Persians conquered Babylon, and the Persian king said, any of the Jews who want to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord, let them go. Right? So when the Babylonians had came, they had burned the city of Jerusalem to the ground, and they destroyed the temple, and they carried all the people off into exile. And now the, the Persian king says, no, no, you can go back, and if you want to go back and read the temp, uh, rebuild the temple, go ahead. And so it was a, it was a transition point in the life of this People and, and what happens in the book of Haggai is Haggai, who is a prophet, comes to the people and, and calls on them to consider their ways, to think carefully about what they've been doing, to reflect on what their, their life and their situation has been, and then to look forward in terms of what kind of things they need to do in the future. So Haggai calls on people to make resolutions, not New Year's resolutions, but to resolve to do things differently. 
But unlike the resolutions that we often make, which are very self-centered, you look at a top 10 list of resolutions and it's all about, well, I got to eat better, I got to sleep more, I got it's all self-care, I got to make sure that I'm in good shape. Haggai's calls his audience to make some profoundly God-centered resolutions. So we're going to look at what was going on in his day and, and why it matters for us in our day. So let's pray and then we'll start. Father, unless the Lord builds the house, the builder builds in vain, and unless the Lord watches the city, the watchman watches in vain, and unless you speak through your word, the preacher preaches in vain. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be faithful to your promise that the word of God does not return void. Help us, Lord, to be attentive to what you would teach us today through your word, as it is the very voice of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, like I said, the people, uh, the, the Jewish people had, many of them at least, had come back to Jerusalem uh, for the express purpose of rebuilding the temple. We know this from from history records, it's 539 B.C. It's when they came back. And you can read about this in the book of Ezra. They start rebuilding the temple. They lay the foundation and they have this big party. And then things stop for 18 years. They started and then they stopped building the temple for 18 years. And the book of Haggai picks up at the end of those 18 years. And it says... In the second year of Darius, the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Those guys are the people who are in charge of the people of Israel at that point. And this is what the Lord said through Haggai. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. So we're starting off this first section, verses 1 to 4, the problem that Haggai is addressing. Haggai is not showing up just to give the people a pat on the back and say, you guys are sure doing a great job. He's confronting them about something that they're doing wrong. And we see it in verse 2. The people are saying the time has not come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord is the temple, right? It was the center of Israel's worship. Now, the ironic thing about them saying that the time hasn't come for us to rebuild the house of the Lord is that 18 years earlier, when they came back, the whole reason they came back was to rebuild the temple. That was the whole reason that the Persian king sent them back to Jerusalem. We're going to send you back to build the house of the Lord. So they started and then they stopped and they're saying, oh, it's, it's, not, it's not time yet. And my response as I'm reading this is, you, it was the only thing you were supposed to have time for. You had one job, and you couldn't do it. No, it's not time yet. We'll figure. And there's all sorts of speculations as to exactly why it is that they said, it's not time yet, it's not time yet, but ultimately we're going to see that it's rooted in something much deeper than circumstances. See, the people have not rebuilt the temple. If we keep reading, 
Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? While this house lies desolate, while this house lies in ruins. So God confronts them for something they've been doing. The people are saying, it's not time for us to rebuild the temple. God says, yeah, but you seem to have plenty of time to build your own houses. And not just build your own houses like, hey, we're going to rebuild the temple, but we don't want to die of exposure, so can we build a couple huts for us to sleep in? It wasn't that. It had been 18 years and their houses are paneled. Now, that may seem like it means nothing, right? It's like they put siding on their house, so what? But what this is referring to is a special kind of cedar paneling that went on the inside of a building and it was very luxurious, right? It's expensive. And the only buildings in ancient Israel that had paneling were the temple and the royal palace. And the people are using the wood for the temple to panel their houses. What do you think that means about how they view themselves? They're building temples. They're building temples to the gods that live in them. Right? So this is the problem. The people are are not rebuilding the temple, but they have plenty of time to build their own houses and build them with luxurious accoutrements. Right? They're, they're tricking out their houses. Well, uh, as you can imagine, God's not super pleased with this. So there are consequences, and you see, starting in verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He repeats that same phrase in verse 7. Consider your ways. Literally, set your heart on your ways. Think carefully about what you've been doing. Right? This is his Dr. Phil moment. So you, uh, you don't have time to rebuild the house of the Lord. you got plenty of time to, to build your house and to use the stuff that you were supposed to use to build the house of the Lord to build your houses, and you think everything's going to go well. How's that working out for you? Well, we see as we read verse 6, so you have sown much but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a a purse with holes. Verse 9, you look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Verse 10, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew. The earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land and on the mountains and on the grain and on the new wine and on the oil and on what the ground produces, on men and cattle and all the labor of your hands. And so there's this famine and drought, these terrible economic conditions, and it's not just bad luck. God says the reason this is the case in verse 9 is, why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house or busies himself with his own house. People are prioritizing themselves over God and what He desires. And so they're instructed in verse 8 how to remedy the situation. It says, go up to the mountains and bring wood 
and rebuild the temple. But notice, he doesn't say rebuild the temple so that everything will start going well for you. He doesn't say rebuild the temple so the drought will stop or the famine will stop. He says rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. So the real problem is something much deeper than uh, the people just not rebuilding the temple and then having these tough economic times. The real problem is that the people aren't prioritizing God. Now, we, we, may, we read this story and God seems to be very upset about the fact that they're not rebuilding the temple, right? That's the key. It's because of my house that lies in ruins. And for us, that's kind of hard to understand because we don't have temples like this anymore, right? Like, he's upset because the church building got destroyed and they're not, I mean, it was really? That seems a little, seems a little testy. But we have to understand what the temple meant for ancient Israel, if we're going to understand this text rightly, to understand what's the big deal about the temple? Why was that such an issue? Well, first, it wasn't that God needed a house, right? Even when they built the first temple, Solomon, at the prayer of dedication to the first temple, said, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built for you? The Lord says, I don't dwell in temples made by human hands. And yet, with the temple in Jerusalem, he said, I've consecrated it that my name might be there for all time. He, he dwelt in the midst of his people, Israel, in a special way at the temple. So that the temple for Israel was the place of God's presence. It was where God met with his people. was also the place at the center of God's purpose, right? The temple is at the very center of Israel's life and worship, and it was the place that, that all people were to come up and worship the Lord, the God of Israel, at Jews and Gentiles, were to stream to the temple. And it was from the temple that God's word and mercy and blessing was to radiate outward into the world. I see this in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah says, Now it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach concerning His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So, so God's message of salvation was to stream outward from Jerusalem, from the temple where God dwelt and the nations were to come and worship. There, This is the vision that the Old Testament has for the temple. It's this central place, this place at the center of God's purpose to bless all the peoples of the world through the descendants of Abraham. It was also the place of God's propitiation. This is your big Bible word for the day. Propitiation means an offering or sacrifice that satisfies and turns away wrath. 
right? So when you see the word propitiation, think the bearing of wrath. The temple was the, the place of propitiation for God's people. It was the place that God had ordained that sacrifices for sin were to occur, that those sacrifices would propitiate or satisfy the wrath of God against their sin. Right? This is, uh, if you've ever heard of the, the Day of Atonement and all the rituals that went along with the Day of Atonement where the high priest would go into this central part of the, uh, of the temple, the Holy of Holies, and he would go with the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on, they called the mercy seat, which was the cover for the Ark of the Covenant that was in there. And that that, uh, sprinkling it there, this was a, the, the means of cleansing and, and, and propitiating the wrath of God against the people because that's what God said was going to be the case. He said, you do this and this is going to be the result and I will count your sins as having been atoned for. Interestingly, that mercy seat is called, also called in Greek the place of propitiation. Right? This is where it happens. The temple was the place where this happened. When that taught Israel, not only that there needed to be a sacrifice for sin, but also that it had to be done God's way. We don't get to pick how our sins get forgiven. God does. And this was a, an object lesson in uh, needing to come to God His way to receive forgiveness. Now, if this is what the, the temple represented, what does that show us about the real problem that was going on with the people who were not rebuilding it? The real problem is that the people ultimately are neglecting God in favor of themselves. That's the root of them not rebuilding the temple. It's not really about the temple. It's about what the temple was and represented, and it showed something about the people's hearts. They were neglecting God's presence in favor of self-sufficiency. God desired to dwell among His people and to bless them and to provide for them, for them to rely on Him. For the people to not rebuild the temple is them like saying, well, yeah, we, we believe in God, we, we like Him, but we really don't need Him around that much. We've we got it figured out pretty well, which then if you look at the way things are going, I'm sure God would be saying, yeah, no, that's not how it's happening. You, you say you're fine, you don't need me to provide for you. How's that harvest? You planted a lot, but you didn't, you didn't get much. How's that working? Right, but they were being self-sufficient. They hadn't totally rejected God, they just neglected Him. They're also neglecting God's purpose for the sake of self-focus. Rather than being concerned on what the temple meant for God's purpose in the world, this place uh, that, would, that would serve to, to, to shoot the Word of God out into the nations and uh, that the nations would come to the temple to worship God as God's purpose is to reconcile all people, Jews and Gentiles, to Himself. Instead, they're busying themselves with their own houses. We'll, we'll get to, to God's stuff later, but i got to finish the, the, the paneling in my house. The people were neglecting God's propitiation in favor of self-salvation. Right? If, 
It's one of the things as you go through the Old Testament, especially the laws in the Old Testament, the laws about sacrifices, the thing that sticks out to you is that it's very intricate and it's not because God was trying to be difficult, it's because He wanted to show people your sin deserves punishment and the way you get your sin forgiven is my way, so you got to do it my way. You can't do it your way. And so the people not rebuilding the temple and starting to, to do sacrifices in other places or maybe not do sacrifices at all shows that they don't really think their sin needs to be forgiven or they don't think it needs to happen God's way. They think it can happen their way. But not rebuilding the temple shows that they really don't have any, any reverence for God. They don't understand His holiness and that what He says is the way things have to be. And all this is rooted in this, this heart of prioritizing self over God. Not an outright rejection of God, right? They still would have claimed that they worshiped the God of Israel, but enough neglect that people wouldn't have been able to identify them as worshipers of, of God. Like many Americans who say they believe in God and Really, the only interaction they have with God is when they really need Him. That's what was going on in Haggai's day. And so Haggai rebukes them and calls them to rebuild the temple and rebuild it for the right reasons so that God might be glorified and pleased. Which means that ultimately the people need a change of heart. Because it's not just about rebuilding the temple, it's about it's about prioritizing God and His purposes, about revering Him and, and worshiping Him. Now, I, I hope I don't have to do too much work to convince you that we're not so different from the people that Haggai was addressing. Right? We, we all tend to neglect God and prioritize self in various ways. Now, the symptoms may be different, right? No one is being called to rebuild a temple. It saddens me that, that this text, when it gets preached in, in churches a lot of times, gets preached as a, as a way to manipulate people into giving to a building campaign, right? I'm not going to be asking you for money for the building today, just so you know. If somebody does that, you can tell them, hey, listen, that's fun, but that's not how the Bible works, the temple was a different thing. So we're not called to rebuild the temple or any, any building, any structure for that matter. That's not what it's about. So the symptoms may be, may be different. The way that we express our, our neglect of God and our prioritization of ourselves may be different. But the sickness is the same and it's a heart that's focused more on self than on God. And so God through Haggai calls us too to consider our ways, to think carefully about what we're doing. Think carefully about what like, the last year has been and what the new year could be. Not by building the temple, right? That was for them. We have to ask, if we're going to understand this text well, what was the temple pointing to? What does that look like in, in our lives? Because if the it's not about the physical temple. The temple was really about God's presence and God's purpose and God's propitiation. We have to ask, where is the place of God's presence now? 
Where is the center of God's purpose now? Where is the place of God's propitiation now? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is what the temple was always pointing to. In the temple, God dwelt with His people, but He dwelt there behind a thick curtain to separate Him because He was so holy that no one could go in unless they had the blood of atonement. And even then, it was once a year, and even then, it was only one person. God dwelt in the temple, but in Jesus... They called Him Emmanuel, God with us. Right? We just celebrated this at Christmas. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the dwelling place of God. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him, Paul says. Jesus is the true place of God's presence. He's also the ultimate center of God's purpose. After the coming of Jesus and His death and His resurrection and His ascension, you read the rest of the New Testament and they are obsessed with Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. He has now become the focal point of God's mission, that all people are called to be reconciled to God through the death of His Son. That God has purposed in His plan to sum up all things in Jesus. He is the center of God's purpose. He is the place to which all nations come and worship. He is the place out of which God's Word, because He is the Word incarnate, He is the place from which God's Word goes out to bless and save. And He's the final place of God's propitiation. Because as the book of Hebrews tells us, all of the sacrifices that were made over and over and over again every year at the temple in Jerusalem ultimately could never atone for sin. The blood of bulls and goats can never atone for sin. But Jesus offered Himself once for all. And when He was done, He sat down. That meant His work was done. His sacrifice was fully sufficient. Where all of the other sacrifices that have been offered for hundreds of years could not atone for sin, Jesus died and His death was a full atonement. He completely propitiated the wrath of God. He bore the wrath of God on our behalf that we wouldn't have to. And so the way that we respond to to Haggai's call for us to consider our ways for us has everything to do with our relationship with Jesus. So a couple things for us to think about then. First, think about God's presence. Like the Jews in Haggai's day, are you neglecting the presence of God in favor of self-sufficiency? You're trying to do things on your own, kind of leave God out of the picture until you really need Him? How would you prioritize God's presence? Well, again, for us, on this side of the cross, for us, prioritizing God's presence means worshiping Jesus. Certainly gathering with His people to worship corporately. We're commanded to do that. But I'm also thinking of your personal worship. Do you worship Jesus during the week or do you come once a week 
to punch your worship card and then say, I'll be back next week. How you been doing with that? What, is it, what does it look like for you to worship Jesus during the week, to, to hear his voice in Scripture, to have his ear in prayer? What can you do to take steps towards making that more of a priority in your life? And if you say, oh, I don't really have time for that, reality is you do have time for it. You just choose to do the things that you'd rather do. I know because it's me too. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that I get up every morning and I'm like, you know what I can't wait to do is have my three-hour quiet time. No, there's a point in the morning where I decide my work is more important than being with God. That shouldn't be. So how do we prioritize God's presence in our life? Worship Jesus. Devote yourself to, to reading and studying Scripture. That's where we hear the voice of God, to praying, to expressing our dependence on Him, that we're not self-sufficient, that we're not all-wise, but He's all-wise, and He can give us everything that we need. And so we need to seek His presence continually. Second, are you neglecting God's purpose in your life in favor of self-focus? Right? If you were to, to look at various parts of your life, what would, the, what would the story be about what you are devoted to or what you're prioritizing? Because right? to, to prioritize God's purpose, if God's purpose is now summed up in, in Jesus, it's all about Jesus, then Prioritizing God's purpose in your life means serving Jesus. A couple places to, to maybe think about what that looks like in your life. First, your checking account. How does the way you spend your money reflect on your priorities? Now, what I'm not saying is that you need to sell all that you own and go uh, live in a cardboard box somewhere for Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you need to give everything away, but do you even realize that what you have has only been given to you? God, God is the one who blesses. And so if you have something, if you've received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? It's been given to you. It belongs to God. You're just stewarding it. So what do your spending habits say about your priorities? Do you prioritize self or do you prioritize God? Think about the way that you give. Do you give if there's a little bit left over at the end of the month? Or do you say, I want to prioritize giving to the work and purpose of God, and so I'm going to give first before I start spending on myself. I'm not saying there needs to be a certain percentage or, or anything like that. Ask the question, how is the way you spend your money reflecting God's purposes in your life? How are you serving Jesus with your money? So your checking account about your calendar. We serve Jesus with our time, with our gifts, with our talents. So if I were to look at your calendar, what, what would it say, what all the, the commitments and appointments say about your priorities? Are you prioritizing self or God? Again, 
The idea here is not that I want your calendar to be so filled up with church stuff that you are never anywhere else and you spend every waking minute here. I don't want to spend every waking minute here. The question is, are, are you doing anything to serve Jesus with the gifts that he's given you, with the talents he has, with the time that he's given you to edify his church? What steps could you take to grow in in serving others this year? Being a part of the work that we're doing here. Now, it doesn't have to be here, but if you're a, a regular part of our church, I think the Bible instructs us to serve those that we, are, that we are in community with. And if you're a part of this church, a regular attender, a member, then you should be serving. Some of you are doing a wonderful job with that. We are so thankful for you. Some of you are doing nothing. If you're new and you're just learning about Jesus, we don't want anything from you other than just for you to hear the gospel. But if you've been here for four, five, six, seven, ten years and you're just occupying a seat on Sunday morning, what are you doing? That's not the way the church works. This isn't a shopping mall. And if you're saying... I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. The time is not yet right for me to start serving the Lord. What sounds like somebody else I know. Because when you start saying things like that, it's the time's not right. The time's not right. I'll do it later. I'll do it later. You know what never happens? Doing it later. Now, there are some of you I know that have different circumstances and there's reasons and so... So I'm not, I'm not rebuking you for that, but if you're a part of our church, one of the ways that you serve and prioritize God's purpose in your life is to be a part of what we're doing here with your commitments. And also, we serve Jesus when we share the gospel. And if God's ultimate purpose is that people would come to know Him through Jesus, then and we serve Him well, we prioritize serving Him, and we view our conversations with other people as opportunities to point them to Jesus. That doesn't mean that every conversation you have needs to start with, hi, my name is John. If you were to die tonight and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Right? That's not what I'm talking about. But do you view your conversations with the people around you as opportunities to point people to Christ, whether or not they're believers? It doesn't matter because if you're not pointing them to Christ, you're pointing them somewhere else, but it's not to Christ. So is that something you think about? To serve Jesus in the way that you talk to others, the way you think about your relationships with others. And lastly, as we, as we wrap, wrap up, are you neglecting God's propitiation in favor of self-salvation? Are you, are you thinking that God will forgive you because you're a good person? Or God will forgive you because you're especially holy or because you do church things or because you got baptized or because you took the sacraments because one time you prayed a prayer even if you really didn't mean it. Prioritizing God's propitiation in our lives means trusting Jesus. That's for Christians as well as people who aren't 
Christians. For Christians, we have a a tendency on a day-to-day basis to seek salvation in other things. We would say, oh no, we're saved by Jesus, it's by faith alone, by grace alone, and yet then in our day-to-day lives, we operate in such a way that we think God is more pleased with us when we do good and less pleased with us when we do bad. And so if we do good, we get really proud, say, God is lucky to have me. When we do bad, we become despondent and say, I don't know how God could ever forgive me. And both of those extremes are wrong because they both ignore the cross, which should be at the very center of our lives. And so Christian. Preach the gospel to yourself. Prioritize the fact that in your mind, in your heart, when you struggle with sin, when you struggle with pride, to look back to the cross. To say that it was at the cross that God's wrath fell not upon you but upon Jesus. And because He has fully paid for all our sins with His precious blood, there's nothing left for us to suffer. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. If you're not a Christian, if you're not trusting in in the Lord Jesus, all this talk of God's presence, God's purpose in your life, all the different resolutions you could make to be better, to do more, none of it matters if if you've not been reconciled to God. And so if God were to ask you, why should your sins be forgiven, what would you say? It's not because of your works. It's not because of your religious performance. There's no sliding scale that God grades us on. The Bible tells us that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve God's wrath. But we can be justified. We can be declared righteous, right with God, by His grace as a gift. Right? Not merit, not something you earn, not something you do and you find out later if you passed, if you did well enough. He gives it to you. He offers it to you. And it's through Christ Jesus. Now watch this. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Jesus is the place where the wrath of God fell so that those who are in Him don't experience it. And like the, like the, the Israelites at the temple would come and they would lay their hands on the head of the sacrifice and that was the way that they identified themselves. And they said, I deserve to die, but I'm identifying with this divinely appointed substitute so that its death represents my death. That's what the gospel invites you to do. Take the hands of of faith and lay them upon the Lord Jesus. Say, because I am connected to Him, I am forgiven because God the just was satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. That His death counts for my death. That His life counts for my life. There's only faith. That's received through faith. Faith is not contrary to miracle on 34th Street. Believing even when common sense tells you not to, that is incorrect. It's trusting, resting, relying upon the promises of God in the gospel. The promise that he who believes in the Son will not be condemned. 
that He was the true and final sacrifice. And so if you are not a Christian, you're not sure if you're going to heaven, if you're not sure where you stand with God, what is stopping you from reaching out your hand by faith and grasping the Lord Jesus and saying, Lord, I deserve wrath, but you bore it for me. Through you, I can be forgiven. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise of the Word of God is you will be saved. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank You that You are pleased with us, not because of our merit, not because of our works, but because Jesus gave Himself for us. Lord, please change our hearts that we might always revere You and honor You. God, help us as we think about our lives, as we consider our ways to to consciously prioritize Your presence and Your purpose and Your propitiation in our lives so that You might receive greater glory and we might rejoice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy New Year. You're dismissed.